0: to us the privilege that we have of getting to sit under the preaching of your word. I pray that you would work in the hearts that are here today. Work in the hearts of all of us, Lord. Uh, We come in in this room, Lord, uh, weighed down by the troubles of this world, the troubles of life, Lord, going through seasons of suffering, seasons of doubt, seasons of spiritual dryness, Lord, Perhaps many of us feel in this room that we are in the desert right now, the wilderness, and, and wanting wanting a reminder of your faithfulness and the promises that we have in Jesus. We pray that this text would be a reminder of that for all of us. We pray that you would comfort those who are suffering, who are afflicted right now, those, Lord, who are perhaps hardened, their hearts are hardened towards you. We pray that you would soften them by your grace and your mercy we pray for the little theologians, the kids who are listening as well. We pray that you would build them up in the faith, Lord, that you would give them and us eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to receive the beauty, the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. And amen. In my lifetime, I've never lived one day of peace in my country, says Jose Miguel. Sokolov, who was a Colombian marketing executive. For more than half a century, Colombia was one of the most violent and isolated countries on the planet, infamous for cartels, for cocaine, and for kidnapping. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, fought the government in the longest-running war in the Western Hemisphere. That is, until... Recently in 2016 When Colombia achieved what many thought was impossible The war was effectively over and the country was transformed Now how do you end a 52 year old war That left over 200,000 people dead Millions of people displaced Against a revolutionary army Dedicated to overthrowing the government Dedicated to mayhem To anarchy The government of Colombia had tried diplomacy. They tried military force. They tried joint efforts with other countries. All of it was to no avail. Then, the Colombian military came up with one of the most unusual ideas in modern warfare. An advertising campaign. They hired Jose, Jose Miguel Sokolov to convince thousands of fighters to give up without firing a shot. This episode was on NPR. This was on This American Life. Perhaps some of you heard this story. In 2010, they launched Operation Christmas, which they found nine 75-foot trees near guerrilla strongholds, near these rebels. They found nine of these trees, and they decorated them with Christmas lights. Each tree, each tree was rigged with a motion sensor that lit up the tree and a banner when the guerrillas, when the rebels walked by it at night. And that banner said this, quote, if Christmas can come to the jungle, you can come home. Demobilize. At Christmas, everything is possible. It worked incredibly well. 331 guerrillas that first year, roughly 5% of the rebel force at the time, demobilized. They came out of the jungle and gave up their guns. The next year, they ran a similar campaign titled Operation Rivers of Light. This time, the marketing firm filled 7,000 translucent plastic balls with small gifts and heartwarming notes, inviting the rebels yet again to come home. And as the rebels traveled by river, this time they saw the balls. They they saw these balls lit up with light floating on the river, coming towards them. They could not resist them. They opened these balls, they received the gifts, and they read the notes. Beauty was the key to this campaign. And then the next year, the the ad agency ran Operation Bethlehem. They shone huge spotlights. ...into the air, and they ran the following message. Quote, this Christmas, follow the light that will guide you to your family and to your freedom. All of this led to nearly 18,000 rebels laying down their weapons and rejoining their families and society. Leading to the end of the war in 2016, to which Jose Miguel Sokolov said this, and I quote... When you see all these lights floating down the river, slowly floating down towards you, you cannot help escape the thought of it. This beautiful thing is for you. You're drawn to it. End quote. Much much, Much the same could be said about the theme of Ephesians, which is God's message, if you will, to us. His message is this, that amidst all the chaos and confusion in our world, amidst the suffering and the hardship in this life, God is at work reconciling all things to himself through his son so that one day all things will become new. That's the theme of Ephesians, and that's the theme of the Bible which is, which is to say that it is the primary story of all of history. Where everything is heading. Where everything will be renewed in the new heavens and the new earth. This is the story of Ephesians. This is the story of the Bible. This is the story of all of history. How do we know this? Because God has already started this work of reconciliation through his people, the church. He is reconciling sinners to himself. He is uniting us to Jesus. And he is renewing us in his image as part of this new creation that is coming. The dawn is here, friends. We are simply awaiting the sun to rise in full glory. And what is amazing to see is how Paul begins this letter. Telling us that this work of reconciliation that God is doing... ...isn't up to me and what I do, but rather it began all the way back in eternity past with the triune God. And Paul cannot wait to tell us about it in verses 3-14. through We're going to spend the next three weeks looking at these verses. We're going to look at each member of the Trinity's role in salvation... And what what you'll see as we do that is we're going to see the beautiful symmetry between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. They are working together to bring about their cosmic plan of reconciliation, of which you and I are a part of. Now, as a side note, I want to ask you to think with me just for a moment before we dive into the text. I want to dive a little bit further on this issue of reconciliation. When we talk about reconciliation, what are we talking about? This is one of those terms that is thrown around quite a bit in our day and age, but rarely defined as to what we're talking about. So that is why I want to talk about it with you just for a moment. When we talk about reconciliation, we're talking about the bringing together of two estranged parties. And in the biblical context here, we're talking about the parties of God and us and the estrangement between God and us now what is that estrangement caused by is it caused by God not at all it's caused by us and our sin against him and here's what i want you to understand about that it's easy when we use the word sin when we think about sin to think about simply the outward manifestations of of sin of stealing or lying or being disrespectful or murdering, those sorts of things. But what the Bible wants us to understand is that when we talk about sin, we're talking about the condition of our hearts. The condition of our hearts at the deepest, darkest, most shameful level of the things that we've done. That it's not just little theologians, kids. Sin is not just the things that we do outwardly, like taking your brother or your sister's toys without asking or not obeying your parents when they when they ask you to clean your room sin goes deeper than that kids what we do outwardly jesus says begins in the heart and that's where our sin starts it starts in our hearts as russian author alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said the line separating good and evil passes not through states Not between classes, nor between political parties, but right down the middle of every human heart, through all human hearts, he said. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? And you see, that's our predicament. Our predicament is that not only is there evil within us, but that we are incapable of removing that evil. John Calvin put it like this. He said, quote, we desire to throw off the blame as far away as possible from us. And this leaves the possibility of reconciliation with God from our perspective. It leaves that outlook grim. If sin and evil is ultimately something inside me, then what can I do to eradicate it? Nothing. Nothing. There's nothing that I can do. And that's the problem, isn't it? Just like a leopard cannot change its spots, so neither can we change our hearts that are accustomed to doing evil, the prophet Jeremiah says. From our side, the enmity and the conflict are eradicable. We cannot remove it. But we can move that. From our perspective, they are eradicable but what about from god's perspective friends what is god's response what has he done he has addressed that estrangement that we caused that we caused him by taking all of our sin including the sin of our hearts that weighs heavy on us the shame that we seem that it, that we seem to not be able to shake he has taken it all away in jesus And that is the beauty of the message of Ephesians. Adoption, redemption, forgiveness, God has provided all of it in his son, in his son. And here's why I bring that up is because in this text, we are not going to simply talk about this in an abstract fashion. We're going to talk about its direct impact on how I view myself. Last week we talked about identity, that in Christ we are given a new God-centered identity. We are saints that have been set apart unto God. We are saints in Jesus Christ. How do I begin to live in this identity? How do I begin to live? How does this begin to affect the way that I view the world, how I view myself, how I view you as my family in Christ? Paul will say in chapter 2 that this reconciliation is so powerful that it not only if Not only have I been reconciled to God, but that we in the church have been reconciled one to another. The reconciliation means that no matter what background I come from, no matter our ethnicity, our social class, or our political party, or anything else that society tells us that we should be divided over, in the church we have reconciliation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how important and essential this theme of reconciliation is for us. It's the model when the the New Testament says things like, as far as it depends on you, live, live peaceably with all or not to be overcome with evil, but to overcome evil with good. That is all flowing out of our understanding of how God has reconciled us to himself and to one another. And our text today is going to further unpack our new identity. It's going to unpack it by telling us how did we become who we are? How did we become saints in Christ Jesus? How did we become recipients of God's grace and God's peace, as he says in verse 2? God's going to tell us, and here's what I want you to keep in mind as we look at this He's going to tell us from His perspective. This is from God's perspective, and that's key to understanding this text, to unpacking it. Remember that what we said at the very beginning Ephesians is offering us a God centered view of the world. It is inviting you and I to go to the Mount Everest of God's plan of redemption and to be absolutely stunned by what he has done for us. And we see that in verses 3 through 14 with the blessing that Paul starts with. Now, little theologians, little theologians, kids, this is what I'd like for you to draw today. Kids, I'd like for you to draw a picture of a mountain overlooking a city. Maybe Pikes Peak overlooking our city. But here's what I want you to do, kids. I want you to draw a river that is flowing down from that mountain into the city. All right? That's the picture I want you to draw. And here's the questions I want you to listen for, kids. One, and you can ask your parents the answer to this question. What does a river provide a city? What does a river provide a city? Thinking about the, the picture that you're drawing. And then these are the two questions related to our text, kids. What is the river that flows down from God's heavenly kingdom to us as people? And then what blessings has has God the Father given to us? What is the river that flows down from God's heavenly kingdom to us, his church? And what blessings has God the Father given to us? Now for the rest of us, here is the question. Here is the question I want you to consider today. That I'm going to attempt to answer with our passage That I believe paul does answer from our passage. I should say Listen to this question. Listen carefully When we struggle in our faith when you struggle in your faith When I struggle in my faith What keeps us from enjoying our identity in christ? What keeps us from living in the grace and peace of god the father and the lord jesus christ? That's the question. I want you to consider when you struggle What keeps you from moving forward in your identity in Christ? What keeps you from living in the grace and peace that God our Father and the Lord Jesus has given to us? That is the question that I believe Paul answers in in an emphatic, definite way, starting in verse 3 and following. And the answer to that question starts by knowing who the Father is and what role he has taken in reconciling us to himself. So, in verses 3 through 6, we learn this about God the Father. We learn that God the Father has blessed us in love, that he has chosen us in love, and that he has adopted us in love. He has blessed us, he has chosen us, and he has adopted us in love. First, we are blessed in love. Look at, look at verse 3 with me and the following. Here we find those amazing words that we read earlier. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is such a monumental statement. Many commentators say that this is basically, this is basically the overflow, the, the, the announcement that the rest of the book will, will unpack for us. It all goes back to verse 3 here. Paul is moved to such adoration, to such praise of God that he uses the word blessed, blessing, three times right there. You, you saw it. He uses the word blessed or blessing three times. He's moved. He's moved to praise God. And why? Because God the Father, he says, has given us every spiritual blessing in his Son. And those blessings have come from the highest place possible. He says in the heavenly places. Now, get this. In in the context in which Paul originally wrote this letter in Ephesus, we talked about this last week. That Ephesus was a very superstitious place. Superstitious place. Excuse me. Superstitious. It was very religious. They worshipped this goddess named Artemis or Diana. And they, they believed that the gods were constantly at war. This is, this is much the same as in Roman mythology and Greek mythology. That the gods were constantly at war fighting over the influence of people. And what Paul is saying here is that for the believers in Ephesus, for the church in Ephesus, they have received every spiritual blessing they could possibly need from the highest of heavens. From the heavenly places, it says there. And Paul will go on to say that all of this, all of this is flowing, flowing from what God has done in his son. That he has exalted Jesus Christ to the right hand. And so these blessings flow down from the highest of, highest of thrones, from the highest of the heavens. From God's throne. Little theologians, this is the answer to that second question, kids. This is the river that flows down from God to us, kids. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, that's the river that flows down to us. And the first thing that Paul says is that we are blessed in love with every spiritual blessing. And he wants us to know that these come to us from God the Father. God the Father. This is stunning to think about because our natural tendency is to think that we must earn or we must perform in order to be accepted. This is essentially the American way of life. america We We are accepted based off our performance. We earn based off how well we perform. This is the way that the world operates. This is the way that schools operate, the business world operates. And sadly, even in our relationships, we can, we can, we can operate according to this way of thinking if you do this then i will do that if you do this well then you will be rewarded for it we're we're all susceptible to that kind of thinking and it may work well in certain contexts but we have to be careful not to apply it with what paul is saying here about god the father god the father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing not because of anything done by us but simply because are you ready because he wanted to he wanted to he wanted to give you every spiritual blessing simply because of his love his grace for you in jesus christ that's what paul's saying and what this means for you and for and for me is that we do not have to earn the father's love we simply receive it as a gift you hear this and you receive it by faith that is it and you have the father's love you have the father's grace I remember hearing the story of a young girl in Texas who was right in the thick of the middle school years, and she was struggling with her identity. She was struggling with her self-worth, and so one night when her parents were away, she took a handful of pills to numb her pain, but eventually she fell ill just as her parents were returning home. And they found her on the bathroom floor crying, thinking that she simply had a stomach bug. Her father asked her if there was anything that she thought she might be able to hold down, to which all she could think of at the time were plums. Her father and mother, they conversed and they figured out, they realized that plums were not in season at that time in Texas. None of the grocery stores had plums. And so she went to bed. But the next morning, she woke up with her father coming into her room with a bushel of plums. That he had just returned from Arkansas, having driven through all the night to get that bushel of plums. And here's what the author says about this. This is the, the young, the, the woman reflecting upon when she was in middle school. This is what she says. Her daddy said, found a roadside stand out there with a feller selling plums. And I said, buddy, I got a little girl sick back home in Texas, and she's got a hankering for plums that ain't nothing else going to do. And here's what she says. You sink your teeth into the plum. The skin is still warm from riding in the sun in daddy's truck, and the nectar runs all down your chin. And you snap out of it. Or are snapped out of it. Never again will you lay a hand against yourself. Not as long as there are plums to eat. And somebody, anybody who cares enough to haul them to you. That's how you acquire the resolution for survival that the coming years are about to demand. You don't earn it. It's given. Now for a brief moment. This dramatic gesture of this father for her little girl made this little girl able to see herself as her father sees her. A father who loves, who loves, not based on anything in his daughter. He loves her because he loves her. And that is what the Bible calls grace. And that's the idea behind what Paul is saying here, with the blessing that the father has given to us, which is something that we need to be reminded of often because of our own struggles our own struggles with thinking that what makes us worthy is really up to me. What makes, what makes me worthy, whether before God or other people, is really up to me. It's in my own hands. I must perform well as a husband. I must perform well as a father, a pastor, a friend. And so I naturally can begin to think that I must perform well as a Christian as well. And even if I am struggling inside, I can't let anyone know. I have to power through it, even if it means faking it. And here's what I want you to understand. In those moments, we are missing the opportunity to really live out what is true of us in Jesus, that we can confess our struggles, that we can confess our doubts, our fears our sins and hear once again that the father's grace the father's peace every spiritual blessing is ours in jesus christ that knowing what we have what you have is the father's love and acceptance and you know what that you know what that enables friends that enables me to love and accept the hardest person to love and accept and you know who that is That's me. Me. And that's when real heart transformation can begin to take place. Because I now have the security, the security that I've been looking for my entire life. The unmerited love of the Father. But here's what I want you to see. Here's where it gets even better in verse 4. That we are chosen in love by the Father. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, Paul says. Here's the first reason Paul gives for praising God. He said he's given us all of these, or every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I know the ESV translates it as just as, but the better translation there is the word because. Here's why we bless God and Father because he has chosen us in Jesus before the foundation of the world, for the purpose that we would be holy and blameless before him. He has decreed that for you and I in Christ. Now, I want you to think with me here for a moment. Why does Paul start with election here? Why doesn't he start with forgiveness, for example? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he has forgiven us. He could have started there. Why didn't Paul start there? Here's what I want you to understand. He doesn't start there because that is not where the father's love began. It began before the foundation of the world. I've heard it illustrated this way. There are three dates that stand out in my life. The day I got married, January 6, 2007. The day I preached my first sermon, June 10, 2007. And the day I became a father. I can still remember the moments, or the moment, I should say, that I laid eyes on my daughter. There she is. And I knew that in that moment, there was nothing, there was nothing that would ever change how I felt about her. I would always love her, no matter what. But right then, in that moment, when she was slimy and... Not very happy of being out of the warm place that she had been in. Did my daughter love me in that moment? No, she didn't. She didn't know who I was, much less have any feelings attached to me. But here's what I try to do in our house, albeit imperfectly. When she or her brothers are struggling with feelings of unworthiness or inadequacy, and they say things like, I'm not good enough, or I wish I was better Here's what I try to remind them of in those moments. I say, Junie, do you know that daddy loves you? To which she'll say, yes, I know that daddy loves me. And then I say, when you talk back to daddy or mommy, or when you hit your brothers, does daddy still love you then? Yes, daddy still loves me. And I say, you better believe it. I love you on your good days, and I love you on your worst. I love it when you do well and I love it or I love you when you fail. I, love you bef- I loved you before you ever loved me and I get to say when I stop loving you and I never will. And here's what I'm hoping. Here's what I'm hoping for each one of my kids as they get older. Is that they will have, they will have the sure foundation that their daddy loves them. No matter who they are or what they do. Because my love for them will never change. My love for my son who's walking down the aisle right now. Likewise, for you and I in Christ, the reason Paul starts off his letter with the astounding statement that before the foundation of the world, his father chose us is so that you and I would have the surest, most secure foundation there is. The love of the Father. The love of the Father. Which, I can speak from experience. It's when I'm living with that at the forefront of my faith, when I'm living with that at the forefront of my faith, Asa James, sit down. I can speak from experience, that it's when I'm living with that at the forefront of my faith, God's love, his love, his acceptance of me, when I'm living with that at the forefront of my faith, when I've made the flip, I've heard it said like that before, that it's so easy to allow, to allow other things to have our attention, to, to, that vie for our value, our worth, our identity, but when we make the flip and the, lo- and the love of the Father is there for us, when I've done that, those are the moments when I am the most secure. When I can face the uncertainties of this life, knowing that my identity, my security aren't found in my performance. They're found in the eternal love of the Father. And here's what I want you to understand. Deep down, we know, we know this because we know what the opposite feels like. We know the opposite. What the opposite is when, when the fear of what other people think, the acceptance, the approval of others. We know what that feels like. It feels like insecurity. It feels like anxiety. It feels like fear. And we're not immune to this in the church. It took me a long time to get this, while I was doing while doing community and ministry in the church. When I would preach, my joy would hang in the balance depending on who said what after I preached. When I was not included in certain social settings, insecurity and anxiety would mushroom to the point that I I would be in dread. I would be in fear for days on end, wondering what is wrong with me. But But Ephesians 1 tells us that that's not how God works, friends. His love chose me. Before I even existed. It's unmerited. It's not based on anything in me. It's not based on anything in you. It's bound up in him. And when we don't realize that. We will struggle with insecurity. Because our view of God will be based on my performance with fill in the blank. Whatever it is. For me it was my performance as a pastor. My performance as a father. My performance as a Christian. I wasn't looking to him and what he had done apart from me. I was looking to myself, and that's a very shaky foundation because I am massively flawed and weak. And that's how I could tell that my vision of God was wrong. Because of the insecurity and the anxiety that was, that was characterizing my Christian life. Because God doesn't want that. He wants us to be secure. He wants us to have the assurance of his love for us. Exactly as we are. Even when we cannot accept ourselves. He wants us to know that we are loved from before the foundation of the world. He wants us to know the security of his electing love. That's the first thing that Paul says that we have in Christ, but then he goes even further and he says that we have been adopted in love by the Father, verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And you'll see your translation, that word beloved there is capitalized because it is talking about in the beloved Son of God. All of these blessings we have found in Jesus. We're very likely familiar with these words, but I want, to, I want us to consider them very carefully as we draw to a close. It was in love that he predestined, Paul said. And the word there simply means that he predetermined to make us his adopted sons through Jesus Christ. He predetermined to make us, to adopt us. There's nothing here about God responding to us and the faith that we exercise towards him that he and then or that he in turn returned the favor to us there's nothing about that here as a matter of fact in the very next chapter Paul will say that we were dead in trespasses and sins but God made us alive together in Christ and if we think about the implication of that what that's saying is that if he had not made us alive, we would still be dead in our sin. That's how dire our situation is. We like to think that we're basically good, or at least that we come into this world with a blank slate. But when we, when we, when we do that, we're only thinking in terms of our relationship, our comparison with others around us. But as I said at the beginning, Paul is showing us from God's perspective. And in relation to God, at the deepest level in the heart, we are dead towards God. We are without hope, Paul says. And this is further underlined by the image of adoption. Look at it with me. This is absolutely brilliant here. At the time that Paul wrote this, Paul was writing to a culture of abandonment, meaning that people could, and often did, abandon unwanted children at will. Ephesus was such a place, uh, as history records, that there was outside the eastern gate of the city, right across from the temple of Diana, there was a garbage dump where people would go and leave unwanted babies. They would not kill them, But because Ephesus was very superstitious, they would leave the fate of the child up to the gods, most notably Artemis, the goddess associated with childbirth. If If an abandoned child was rescued, it usually meant that they were destined to a life of slavery or prostitution. And here's what Paul is saying about God and his electing love. That God in his electing love went to that extreme of adopting those that were essentially unwanted, those that were left outside to fend for themselves. He has come and he has taken you and me and adopted us. There was nothing just like the picture of that adoption. There was nothing to warrant it. If anything, there was plenty for God to leave us alone, to, to warrant him leaving us alone and passing us over. But Jesus stepped in, friends. Jesus stepped in and he became our sin and our shame. And he was abandoned on the cross so that you and I would not have to experience abandonment from God. And so that we could be taken to his father. We could be adopted. We could be received and have all the rights, all the privileges of the son of God while he was here on earth. And he offers the same adoption, the same love, the same grace to all who will receive him by faith. Every spiritual blessing is yours. Adoption, the, fa- the security of the father's love, his grace for you. Little theologians, kids, it's there for you. Look to Jesus by faith and you can receive it. What a beautiful picture of the family Of the Trinity. This is the God of the Bible, sharing their love and their grace and going as far as they could possibly go to make us part of their family. You and I, we have been adopted by your Heavenly Father, who has taken away every obstacle, every hindrance, every barrier from us to Him because of His electing love, because He loves you. Because he wanted you. He wanted you to have every spiritual blessing from the highest place. His glorious grace in Jesus Christ. That is a promise that you can receive by faith. And you can trust that today. Election is yours. Adoption is yours. Reconciliation with the Father is yours. Receive it as a gift by faith. And you can come home to him. And he will welcome you to the praise of his glory. He will do that today and every day, dear sinner in Christ. Your heavenly father is ready and able. He is glad that you are here. Receive it. Receive it. Praise him for his glorious grace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you for your glorious grace. We thank you for your electing love. We thank you for your adopting love. Lord, that before there ever was a world, before we ever uh, breathed, uh, breathed our first breath here, Lord, you had your sight set upon us in Jesus. Lord, help us. Help us to look to Jesus Help us to look to him and be reminded of the security that we have with your love over us. Help us to live out our identity as your adopted children, your sons, your daughters that you have loved from all eternity. Help us to do this, Lord. It is so difficult sometimes, God, when, uh, in uh, dealing with the complexities of our own hearts, our sin, our struggles. In those moments, let us be reminded of the riches of Ephesians 1. We pray this, we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen.